The Rewatchables is brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network, where you can find our new Cam Newton podcast, The Cam Chronicles, a six-episode series about, series about Cam Newton. You could also find the return of TV Concierge, which is exclusive on Spotify. Which ones did we do, Chris Ryan? We did Palm Springs today. This week, we're also going to talk about The Old Guard on uh, Netflix and uh, Supermarket Sweep and Dark, a bunch of stuff this week. All right, that's good. Plus all the other awesome Ringer Podcast Network offerings that we have. Coming up, Chris, you want to go see a dead body? Stand by me. That's next. Oh, man. Where do you hear this? What is it, man? You guys want to go see a dead body? Columbia Pictures presents... Kids gone. They're never going to find him. Not where they're looking. A Rob Reiner film. I'm never going to get out of this town now, my Gordy. You can do anything you want, man. So die. Stand by me. The four of us, eyeball. You just make your move. You're dead. Rated R. Now in select cities. Sneak preview August 16th in additional cities. All right. Chris Ryan is here. We are doing this because uh, on HBO on Tuesday night, what day is that? July 14th? Yeah. July 14th. God, how is it July 14th? A new documentary called Showbiz Kids, directed by Alex Winter, which I am an executive producer of. We spent the last two years trying to make it happen. We made it happen. One of the people in it is Will Wheaton, and we wanted to do uh, a movie basically playing off somebody that was in that documentary. So we looked at all the possible choices. Stand By Me is about as close to perfect of a 34-year-old movie as we're going to get. It's also timeless because it's set in 1959. My kids love it. I feel like their kids will love it. Is this movie a no-hitter, Chris Ryan? Absolutely. Like, there is there a false note in this movie at all? I mean, that you could really, really granularly get into like, oh, you can tell that's a special effect or, you, you know, maybe this part goes on a little long. But everything from the tone, the writing, the performances, the sense of place... And the fact that it feels universal, but so, so, so specific to this experience, you know, like any kid, any adult probably will watch this movie and be like, oh yeah, I have something similar like this, but it's so very particularly set in this like weird Stephen King world. I saw this movie, I think when I was 16 and I just watched this movie over the weekend with my two kids. I think it hits me the exact same way. I don't even think it really matters that I'm a different age. It's a timeless movie that however you felt about yourself when you were 12 years old, however you felt about the friends that you had back then, um, it's going to hit you that way. It does It does have some really crucial, essential points about some people just pass through your life. He has that quote about, uh, you know, sometimes you stay friends with somebody forever. Other times they're like a busboy that was in your life when you're eating dinner for two hours and then you, some other friends. And that's honestly what life is like. As I get older, I think like I have a lot of friends, but you have these concentrated pockets of like, oh, those three years, all I did was hang out with these five guys. And then that other time during this stretch. Uh, so when he, at the end of the movie, when he's basically like, yeah, Vern went off, we didn't really see him again. And then Teddy kind of lost his mind. I heard he's doing odd jobs. Like, that, in a lot of ways, feels like the most realistic part of the movie, right? Yeah. I think that the one way to look at it is like, you know, it's a well-worn cliche to say, you know, you never forget your first love. I, I think you never forget your first friends like this. 
You know, yeah. you may have friends when you're seven or six or whatever, and you're kind of, you, you guys are just running around a lot. But like the friends you make right around this age, right before puberty fully takes hold. And, you know, he even says at one point, Gordy says at the fi- at, when they're sitting around the campfire, he's like, it's the kind of stuff you talk about before you discover girls, basically. Um, you kind of remember those friendships for the rest of your life. I was just telling Craig, our producer, that like I'm not friends really with anybody who I was friends with at this age, but I remember full days that I spent with them. Like even now at 42, in a way that yeah. I can't remember stuff that I did when I was 30 or 25. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that when we do the categories. It, the categories are interesting this time around because I don't have a lot of nitpicks and I don't have a lot of what's age the worst. And it's well, going to sound like we're just drinking Kool-Aid for this movie. But honestly, it's that good. I wanted to ask you, you know, oftentimes when we revisit these movies, especially ones from our childhood, and then we're like, oh, and now this time I, I see it from this person's perspective and different characters' perspective. I found myself real team Cobras on this rewatch. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all ace, you know, all the guys. No, those guys were dirtbags, but it was really funny because I think I had forgotten. I hadn't watched this movie in a few years and I had just forgotten A, all the that guys in the Cobras. Yeah. And B, just like what absolute scumbags, but perfect villains they were. Yeah. I had that down for the what stage the best. It was that era where you could have the leader of the gang, like Ace, and he was really a badass just because he like played chicken on the highway and he carried a knife. Yeah. And that was really all you needed. Now, <laughs> if you're doing that guy in 2020, that guy's a lot darker. Oh God, yeah. I mean, there's yeah. I mean, 70 pretty dark different back things. Then, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to dive into River Phoenix because it's really hard to watch this movie and not get swept up in how great he is and all the potential he has. And it's really an experience you only have a couple times with actors like this, where you just know they're going to be incredible. I felt this way with uh, DiCaprio in This Boy's Life. I felt this way with Natalie Portman and The Professional and Beautiful Girls, where you're just like, that person is going to be a, a, a number one overall draft pick at some point in their life. And I can't wait to see this awesome career they have. The best way I can explain the River Phoenix thing to people who are younger is another analogy that might be hard for people to understand when they're younger. But to me, it's like Glenn Bias for acting, um, where it's like, there's this Glenn Bias scenario where nothing bad happens to him. And he basically becomes as good as Charles Barkley or Carl Malone on the Celtics with Larry Bird and Kevin McHale. He becomes the forward version of Michael Jordan. He ushers in this whole new era of basically power plus ballet for an NBA forward. And he's just such, he's like probably one of the first NBA badasses that we have. And he has this whole career and we just think of him so fondly. And in one minute it was gone. And I feel the same way with River Phoenix. The guy died when he was 23. And when you watch this movie, I think the potential of him and what he could have become it almost overpowers the movie. And I, and I mean it in a good way. It's his movie. It belongs to him. And it's impossible to watch it without just constantly thinking about what would this guy's career have been like? Or am I, do you feel that way too, watching it? Yeah, I think that there are, when you think about like great performances or memorable performances by child actors, they usually fall into one of two categories. There's kids who are great at being kids like Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone. Or Haley Joel Lasman in The Sixth Sense, right? I would say he's the second category where he's like incredibly precocious 
it almost seems like an adult in a kid's body, like the way yeah. his the way he reads dialogue, the way he seems to be interpreting the world. River Phoenix and Stand by Me is just like a full three dimensional human being. It, it it feels like there's no filter between actor and performance. Like you, what you get on the screen is like absolutely uncut. And I think that was a hallmark of his performances that that he did leave behind. Whether it's like My Own Private Idaho or you know, something like Running on Empty, which I really love. Um, you know, these these movies that he left behind, like no matter what age he was, he had like an incredible raw humanity that was always on display. And like the stuff he's doing in Stand By Me is absolutely ridiculous. It's like off the charts how present and vulnerable he is, but also like weirdly cool. Like even though he's just a 12-year-old kid. And it, it's just, you can feel the entire movie jump up into another stratosphere when he's on screen, which is obviously a lot. And how handsome he is too. I, I, he's just so, yeah. everything about him, it's a complete package. And my wife and daughter are watching it last night and both of them are like, God, he was so good looking. You know, it's, it's he just had every single quality you would want if you were like, all right, we want a lead actor for the next 30 years. What, what would this person look like? It would be him. And what's crazy about it is Leo basically shows up I don't know. He goes on Growing Pains late 80s and then eventually he's in Gilbert Grape and then he's in This Boy's Life and he starts to have a real career probably in the 91, 92 range. And it was really hard to watch Leo as his career took off, finally culminating in Titanic without thinking like, this is kind of what should have happened for R River Phoenix. And I think he had issues pretty much within two years of this movie. He's, I think, 15 when he makes this movie, 14 or 15 when he makes this movie. By the time he's making My my Own Private Idaho, he's uh, he's having issues. Yeah. yeah. And he's battling them basically for the rest of his life, and he ends up dying at the Viper Club of an overdose. And um, I think it was a big reckoning for the movie industry and the young actors is the same way that the Len Bias thing was a big reckoning in sports where it's like, Hey, cocaine, this just took Len Bias. Let's be careful. What are we doing? Um, I think with River, it was the same thing for a whole generation of guys. Yeah, hugely impactful death, especially on that generation of actors. I mean, I think you know, you've heard Winona Ryder talk about it. I mean, you know, obviously, it had a huge impact on his brother's life. I, in, one thing that kind of connects to that is that when you watch him, when you think about like these really great, great actors that we've had over the years, whether it's yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis or Leonardo DiCaprio or um, even to some extent Joaquin Phoenix, you know, I always think of those those guys as like on an island. Like you don't think of them as part of a crew or a gang or like they, they don't, like River Phoenix seemed like a really good friend. And you can yeah. see in the movie his facility with Will Wheaton's character and the other guys and even like he seemed like a sociable person in a real world. Not like I am a actor made in a Petri dish who is just going to go off and learn this part and then learn how to like be Abraham Lincoln or be Jack and Titanic or figure out the blood diamond. Not, not, a, not to knock Leo, but do you know what I mean? Where sometimes great actors seem almost unknowable and River Phoenix seemed like incredibly knowable in that way. Yeah. And he has, you know, he has that monologue about the, uh, the milk, stealing the milk money. And then the teacher basically yeah. lying about him so she yeah. could keep the money for himself. And it's like a four minute scene and it's about as good as anybody under 18 is going to do with this scene. And I think Leo had a couple moments like that too, over the course of uh, the first part of his career. 
it's so hard to find somebody, especially uh, an actor, um, who could just kind of show off all the tools. You know, to borrow the basketball analogy, it would be, it, it's almost like when you go back and you read this stuff about LeBron when he's like a sophomore or a junior in high school and and the, and the Sports Illustrated piece comes out and they're like, this is the total package. This is everything you would want in a basketball player this guy has. And I think River and Leo are the only two guys in the last 35 years under 18 that you could have said that about. Where it's like, all right, check, let's check all the boxes of who can, how somebody can become an A-plus list movie star they were the only two people that were gifted with the car wash package. And it was something that I remember I wrote about in my basketball book that it's, it happens so rarely in the NBA and in football and in baseball and in acting and in music where somebody gets the car wash package, where it's like, you go to the car wash and it's like, which, which section do you want to get for your car? And there's that one where it's like, all right, for $39.99, we'll do everything. Mm -hmm. And there's only a couple actors really in our lifetime that have gotten it. I really feel like he was one of them. And you, and this is the movie out of all the movies he made where you see it. Yeah. You, I mean, and you see little, little tastes of it. I mean, the, the idea that he could do my own private Idaho and also be the same person who played young Indiana Jones in last crusade and have that kind of range and have that kind of movie star magnetism, but also like real, real dramatic chops. It's just, a, I mean, just even talking about it, 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 it's really, you think about all the stuff we missed out on. Yeah. The Indiana Jones was interesting because that was one lane that his career could have gone, right? It was like worst case scenario, he's Harrison Ford. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that's like his worst case scenario. Best case scenario, he might be De Niro Pacino right. going that route. But worst case scenario, he could have a thirty-year Harrison Ford career and right. just and we be saw the lead and we saw like the, it's interesting that that chalice of of the that role is like because that was sort of offered up to Shia LaBeouf like a little later and I think I, I think without getting too into the weeds on that like he he obviously is someone who child actor w like did a bunch of blockbuster stuff but also clearly had like real chops and then kind of went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, and I think there's a difference, like you pointed out, between a successful child actor and a child actor who can make you kind of see what the future is for them too. And I, Portman is another great example. Like if you you left Beautiful Girls, and you're like, that person's going to win an Oscar. Like mm -hmm. you just you kind of knew it. It was, she hit she hit every kind of note you would want from a 13 year old actress. Um, yeah, it's interesting it the just, people who, bet on it. who project that way. Like when you think back on early Sean Penn performances. Yeah, um, that's and another you're just good like, one. Well, this guy's just like unfucking deniable. Like you, you did. They will have to like put this dude in a, a hole in the ground for him not to to be something amazing. It's funny. I was trying to think of. I didn't. I was really trying to think of people like from the last twenty years that you could have said this about. And I don't know whether it's because our culture has changed and people get too hyped up now um, or we're making less movies that have good parts for people who are under 18 or whatever. Um, yeah, maybe. you had asked me and Sean on text a little while ago about this. And I think he and I were both saying like Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet are probably like the best under 30 actors young right actors now. right now. Um, and it'll be really interesting because Chalamet is going to be in and whenever movies come out again, he'll be in Dune, which is like his big blockbuster one. And so for a while, he's been kind of making more art house stuff. But like, I think that it'll be really fascinating to see what whether he can carry like a sci-fi epic like that. 
But even Chalamet, like, I never could have bought him as Indiana Jones's son. You know, I, I think there were certain doors that just weren't going to be open for him with movie roles as good of an actor as he is. Right. And I think Shia LaBeouf was the same way where part of the problem with Shia LaBeouf was he was trying to do that River Phoenix Leo arc in the early part of his career. And I just don't think he was as talented as those guys. It's You can't really say River was a unicorn because I think Leo ended up doing a lot of the things we thought River was going to do. Mm-hmm. But um, but the potential of it and kind of the the loss of what we didn't get, not to mention like the guy died and how horrible that was. And you can even feel with his brother who carries it to this day and won't even talk about it. And I think in a lot of ways feels like he's carrying the legacy of it. But then you think about that where you, you had these two incredibly talented brothers that obviously would have done at least one amazing project together at some point in their lives. But River was such a dominant force that 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 shadow kind of hung over the brother for a long time. You know, it was hard to take him seriously because he was always just River Phoenix's brother. It was like, well, he's always going to be that. Yeah, and it's like, I, I think that that whole extra textual stuff, like cloud hangs over Stand By Me, sometimes making the movie a little bit, I mean, for a movie that is as, as almost like effervescent as Stand By Me is, it's it's incredibly dark when you start to consider all the other stuff that, you know, like just the fact that River's character you know from the first scene has passed away already mm. and has been murdered and and you know you're going into the movie with that and then there is the kind of the older brother plot line with John Cusack's character with Denny so it's just like it's got a lot of resonance well and then you think about where this movie fits in with the documentary that we made with HBO and Alex Winter the showbiz kids is not about oh man here's all the horrible stuff that happens when you become a famous child actor it's 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 way smarter than that and it's way more subtle than that and what's interesting about Stand By Me as it fits into the context of that movie is it fits a lot of the lanes for how this can go right and wrong right like Will Wheaton basically becomes pigeonholed as the Stand By Me guy and has talked about that openly and talks about that in a documentary where it's like people just knew him as Gordy he couldn't break out of it I think Henry Thomas was like that with E.T. to some Mm -hmm. degree Um, River the way his career went um that's a lot of like the uh, the ill effects of what can happen with young stardom and getting a lot too soon and making a couple of bad choices, getting derailed by them. Corey Feldman, everyone knows his whole story, but I think this movie really ties into nicely his real life, which was by all accounts, like his childhood was really miserable and and probably just as chaotic as the character in this movie ends up falling into movies, making a couple and gets thrown into the the fast life of Hollywood, becomes friends with Corey Haim. They do that whole thing. And he's living like he's a 35-year-old guy when he's 15. That's another way it can go. And then there's the Jerry O'Connell side, which is the side that's not as sexy to talk about, but it's like, yeah, he's the fat kid in Stand By Me. Eventually, all of a sudden, 10, 12 years later, 10 years later, he's in Jerry Maguire as Cush. He's the quarterback. It's like, whoa. Yeah. Hey, he's handsome now. And he had a really good experience. He had a child actor experience that led to an adult experience and he's had a good career. And 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 so it's basically the four paths are all in this movie, plus the Kiefer Sutherland path, which I guess you could throw in there too, Celebrity Kid. Yeah, and also I think that that, that comes across in the film itself. Uh, you know, the, the guys in this movie have talked about how the, their characters were essentially who they were. 
you know, that that yeah. like Will Wheaton was bookish and shy, that Jerry O'Connell was kind of like a little bit of a class clown, that Corey was really that intense and that River really was that fucking cool and that he was that like he was that dude. Yeah. Well, another thing about this movie, it was adapted from the Stephen King novella, The Body which is about four boys in 1959 in Oregon going on a hike to find a dead body of a missing boy. It's funny. This was the first Stephen King movie he was happy with. Mm -hmm. So they had made a whole bunch of them. And he has been pretty open. This is the first one I liked. And Reiner recalled there was a private screening of the film. King hadn't seen it before. It The movie ended. He excused himself for 15 minutes to compose himself. And later returned and said, quote, that's the best film ever made out of anything I've written, which isn't saying much, but you've really captured my story. It's autobiographical. The big change Reiner made was the book was about the four kids. He geared it more through the Gordy point of view, really played up the parts with the dead brother. And now he was the, you know, the second kid in the family who was kind of basically passed over for, from an intention standpoint. He was also a future writer. Um, and then in the in the pivotal scene with the gun when they're trying to scare away Kiefer Sutherland's character from taking the body, in the book, Chris Chambers is the one that has the gun. In the movie, it's Gordy, which is a really important twist. But to to subtly shift it to Gordy's point of view is crucial. I and I think it's the way it had to be. Yeah. And I think it, you know, we've talked about we talked about this when we did Shawshank with your dad, but I would I would make make the argument that the two best films made out of Stephen King material are the two that are the least horror. You know, they're the ones that are the most sort of real and rooted in like human experience. Which isn't to say that there's not really awesome Stephen King horror things, but it it really captures. Um, I think what what King does is he finds like terrible beauty and terrible things, and terrible things and beautiful things, and he sees like an idyllic. Oregon kind of farmland and sees it as like full of traps, full of leeches, full of gang members, full of all this stuff. And he, I think Reiner does a really good job extracting that without going over the top, without making it seem terrifying. I got to say, it hurts my feelings that Stephen King always shits on the movies about his books because I liked all the movies. So I like, like Christine. I like Christina. I like. I, like I mean, I'm like. I like Maximum Overdrive. Like Maximum I like Overdrive. Dead, is probably, I like the Dead Zone. Yeah, we've I, already did rewatchables on The Shining. It's like fuck you, Stephen King. Let us enjoy your. Let us think, enjoy your I, IP. I, I think Shawshank and Stand by Me are in like a completely different category. I would put Misery there too, though. I think the thr I think those three. Fair enough. Another Reiner one. Yeah, and I I think some people would put it the first the first it not the sequel. Yeah, it was. I think very, close very to the level, movie. but yeah. It, if you're ranking them, you're right. Shawshank and Stand By Me are the ones that have aged the best, that were loved when they came out and have had a second life. And I think for for the purposes of this podcast, it's incredibly rewatchable. Like mm -hmm. if you're coming into it right before, right as you see them walking on the train tracks and you see Gordy bend down to to hold the train to see if the, the thing's hot, and you know, like, oh man, we're gonna go right through this, and then the pie eating contest is coming up right after I'm in. I'm watching next half hour. I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, it really doesn't slow down, even though it's such a, a sort of placid and and still movie. 
the momentum of the narrative is pretty much nonstop until you get to the campfire and they are and they start telling the story. And even that has obviously the pie eating contest. It's like very subtly propulsive. And it's it's a great road trip movie in a lot of ways, and even though they're just walking. So Reiner said he feels like Gordy basically became Stephen King, which is how he approached when they were retooling the movie. And it sounds like Stephen King says the same thing. He also said he identified with Gordy because he lived in the shadow of his dad at the time. His dad was Carl Reiner, like one of the most iconic comedians of the 50s and 60s. And even though he was meathead on all in the family, and then he ends up directing, he does Spinal Tap, which was a cult movie, but was really, really smart. Mm-hmm. Um, then he does The Sure Thing, which I loved, which is, sure I, I don't know if that movie's aged that well, but um, is is the movie that I think we all thought Cusack, this was it, it was going to happen for him. And it's really well done, well directed. Then he does this and his career takes off from this. We did A Few Good Men as, as one of the first rewatchables we did. He did that one. He has just an awesome 10-year run and then it kind of goes south after that. But um, Yeah, well, he's one where I think it's like, th- it, you, you, you could have this argument all day, but I think it was more that movies changed on him. You know what I mean? Like hmm. the, the kind of movies that Rob Reiner is really good at making are the kind of movies that rarely get made right now, which is relatively expensive human dramas with like a little yeah. bit of a high concept, but for the most part, they're like, they're, they're very much character studies, but they have like a real mainstream appeal. Those don't really get made that much anymore. Well, even this movie almost didn't get made. It was, it took a while to actually get it going. A company named Embassy decided to make it. The shooting's about to start summer 85. Embassy gets sold to Columbia Pictures and Columbia says, fuck this, we're not making this. So with like three days before they would have had to cancel the shoot or not. Did you know this whole story? Yeah, I only just found out about it during the research. I didn't know that. So Norman Lear, the famous Norman Lear, who's still alive, I have no idea how much money he's made over the years. He's one of the co-owners of Embassy. He gets all this money. He decides to give $7.5 million of his own money to, to just basically make the movie happen. He's like, Rob Reiner's like, yeah, it does sound like we can shoot Norman Lear's like, I got you. <laughs> Let me just cut this check for seven and a half million. Yeah. I was asking Kimmel about it because Kimmel's worked with him on these, uh, those kind of all in the family reboot the live, things. Yeah. And I was like, how much money does Norman Lear have? Because I was like, you could tell me any number and I'd believe it. You could tell me he has like, $30 billion. And I'd be like, all right, that may- maybe that might make sense. He had like multiple number one shows during an era when 35 million people were watching TV shows. And those shows were on three times a day in every different like cable network in the country. Yeah. Right. And he was syndicating them for two decades after they were. So however well he did, he had enough money that he was like, I got this. Let me call my business guy. I'll cut you a check for seven and a half. <laughs> And Stand By B ends up happening. Then they have to sell it. And everybody passes. The Columbia Pictures guy named Gil McElwain, he had a home screening because he was sick. So he's like, how about we come to my house and you guys can show it here? He likes it. But more importantly, his two daughters were two of the people watching the movie along with some Columbia people. And the two daughters were like, we're in love with River Phoenix. (laughs) Can you make that movie happen? We want to go see this in the theater 20 times. 
And that was it. The movie takes off and it ends up doing really well. It's $8 million budget made 52 million bucks. Plus God only knows how much in cable, DVD, Blu-ray. And has gone on to become one of those movies that they have like basically like a Stand By Me festival in Oregon. And they, this is, I think this would probably be, I don't have kids, but I would, I would imagine this is one of the top five movies that you put aside and you're like, I can't wait to wait to show my kids this. Oh yeah, I can't get my kids to watch anything with me anymore. I mean, they eventually will only because I threat have to threaten to take away stuff. But I was like, "Hey, we got to watch Stand by Me." I'm doing rewatchables tomorrow. My son's like in, and like wasn't even on his phone. Like he's just laughing. He's basically the same age as the four kids. Yeah, but stuff like um, the little one liners where there's like. Uh, Maybe uh, maybe I'll have my dick for dinner, and somebody says oh, it'll be a small meal, like yeah. all that stuff. Like he's just laughing his ass off. Yeah, they never slow down to explain any of the stuff that they, that's like between the four kids. It's so cool. Like they just are, you know, like the even from the card game in the beginning, you're just like fully just in their world where it's like boss and sincerely and skin it and I knock and all that stuff, and you're just like I don't even need I don't need the Wikipedia page for this. Like I'm all in. You don't have to explain a single thing to me. It's another example of when somebody says, we're not going to shoot the movie right away. I want you guys to all hang out for two weeks. Uh-huh. It seems like that works every time. Half of the movies we do for the rewatchables, it seems like they employ some version of that strategy of, I just want you guys to get to know each other better. And then it like takes off. Yeah, it seems like it goes really well for... Uh, it goes really well for movies. It's the opposite for making albums. It's only when the band is like, so we decided to get a house in the countryside of England. That's what right. it turns into. And so, and so the Stones did heroin for five years. And that's when Keith Richards tried to kill Mick Jagger with a, <laughs> with a broken bottle. Um, this film was nominated for an Academy Award. For screenplay? Best adapted screenplay. Yeah. Roger Ebert, for some reason... His review is not online for this movie, but was a big champion of it, apparently. But some so, weren't. I, I saw in re- rereading some of the reviews that there was a lot of like, Rob Reiner's style is always winking at the at the audience. And like, it, it, it got some pushback. I mean, it's probably one of the most beloved movies of my lifetime. So it's it's almost bizarre to read something where someone's trying to like take Stand By Me down a notch. Yeah. I do think there was a small piece of fuck Rob Reiner, he's meathead. Yeah. Like how dare Meathead makes movies? Right. Who right. who do you think you are, Meathead? And maybe that wasn't helping. We're gonna do the categories. Most rewatchable scene. Try to narrow this down because the whole movie's rewatchable. I really like the scene near the top when they run into Key for Sutherland, aka Ace for the first time. And Gordy has that new Yankee hat that he just went into his dead brother's closet to get. Well, it's the one Denny gave him. Yeah. Yeah. And he's and then they just take the hat in like two seconds. But I'm already attached to the hat because I've been introduced to this whole subplot with the dead brother. And those guys take the hat. They could give a shit. Hey, come on, man. My brother gave me that. And now you're giving it to me. Give it to me. Come, come on, man. That's mine. You real asshole. You know that? Ooh. Your brother's not very polite, eyeball. Now, Christopher. I know you didn't mean to insult my friend. It does a lot in two minutes. It establishes Kiefer Sutherland as like, wow, that guy's an asshole. He almost put a cigarette against River Phoenix's face. It establishes that like Will Wheaton's character, Gordy, 
probably isn't going to be able to fight back against these guys, which then we get the 180 at the end. River Phoenix, like tough enough to stand up next to Ace, but not tough enough yet to fight off the cigarette thing. But yeah. you kind of know like someday he'll be able to get his. And it's just, I just think it's a really good scene. There's not a wasted frame in this in this movie. You can, every everything that happens at the end of the movie happens in the beginning of the movie. It's like right. uh, Eyeball doesn't stand up for Chris at the end of the movie. He gets a little bit nervous about it and he's like, hey, Ace, like, what are you doing? The look Gordy gives Ace and Eyeball after they steal the hat is definitely one of one day I'm going to get you guys. Like one day I'm going to have my revenge on you guys. And it's like such a perfect scene setter because it's like the only characters in this whole world are essentially the kids in the kids looking for Ray Brower and and the Cobras. Like there's no, it doesn't seem like there's really any parents. It doesn't seem like there's no, there's no cops. Like everybody is just only a function of like stories people are telling or they're looking for the body. It's so like, it's so singular in its drive. I, I love that scene. Next one I got is Gordy goes to buy Cokes and hamburger meat. At Quidicello's. And that dude springing up his brother and does the, wow, about a quarterback, man. So what do you do? And Gordy, like, you could see him kind of being like, I don't have an answer yet. And yeah. he's just like, I don't know. And then leaves the store and you're feeling bad for him. And they kind of subtly move in like, wait, his friends aren't there anymore. And then he sees the guy in the junkyard and then he turns and he sees his guys climbing the fence. And now he's got a outrun chopper who turns out to be a golden retriever. Corey Feldman ends up yelling at the junkyard guy, that whole scene, that, that, that whole scene's really good. I love the moment. Cause I remember very clearly like when in my life I started to go to the store by myself mm. and I had like a little right around this age. Yeah. And you're like, y- y- your mom sends you to pick up milk or whatever and maybe you're allowed to get like one thing for yourself. But the idea of like shopping for you and your friends for a couple of days, it's like, I don't know if I would have been able to resist the idea of like not buying like 17 boxes of nerds and like a, a, a blue Mountain Dew. <laughs> That's what my wife said. Just seeing that store brought back so many nostalgic yeah. memories. Of, yeah. You know, the the glass bottle sodas, terrible candy everywhere. I, there there should have been baseball cards like at the counter. That would have been a nice touch. Yeah, you get I like white bread and cold cuts. Yeah, I, I, that's, yeah. that's really good. Um, next scene. River has that speech about uh, how Gordy has a gift for writing. And you got to pursue that, blah, blah, blah. I don't really have anything. And that, you know, you could take college classes. Well, then you're an asshole. What's asshole about wanting to be with your friends? It's asshole if your friends drag you down. You hang with us, you'll just be another wise guy with shit for brains. You could be a real writer someday, Gordy. Fuck writing. I don't want to be a writer. It's stupid. It's a stupid waste of time. That's your dad talking. Bullshit. Bull true. I know how your dad feels about you. He doesn't give a shit about you. Danny was the one he cared about. And don't try to tell me different. You're just a kid, Gordy. Oh, gee, thanks, Dad. Wish the hell I was your dad. You wouldn't be going around talking about taking these stupid shop courses if I was. It's like God gave you something, man. All those stories that you can make up. And he said, this is what we got for you, kid. Try not to lose it. But kids lose everything unless there's someone there to look out for them. And if your parents are too fucked up to do it, then maybe I should. It's really important, and I'm always amazed. We talked about this sometime over the course of 
this podcast, when movies have just that one or two extra scenes where they just put in the two and a half minutes with two characters where it's like, I know you're telling me these guys are best friends, but why are they best friends? Mm -hmm. Show me that they're best friends. And they're able to do it in like 150 seconds where uh, just the interplay in that, it's like, okay, I get it now. These guys are fucking best friends. It's really essential. Those two kids complete each other. Like Chris is a cool, tough guy who does have a sensitive side. And Gordy is a sensitive kid who wants to be a part of a bigger world and be cool. And like you, it, it just clicks. It completely and makes no sense. And no competition with them. They're, and the, they're and the in way in which they're completely. not quite like Vern and Teddy. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, and that's, and that really comes through. It's, 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 you're right. Well, it's like the bat. It's like how the current NBA teams work, right? Where it's like, you got your two guys now. And then you have your rotating cast of Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, whoever the fuck. And those guys are like the Gordy. Or I'm not the Gordy, uh, the uh, Teddy. Teddy and Vern, yeah, yeah, Teddy and Vern. That those guys can always flip, but you need the two guys. Dwight Howard and, and Vern have kind of the same energy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Vern doesn't want to go in the bubble. Of I don't know, guys. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, next scenes, next two rewatchables are right next to each other: the big train scene and the pie eating contest, which are just iconic scenes. The train scene, everything about it, how they do it. And you know it's coming every time, but the wide shots of the bridge, how quiet it is, him feeling the train, the train tracks. You guys can go around if you want to. I'm crossing here. And while you guys are dragging your candy asses halfway across the state and back, I'll be waiting for you on the other side, relaxing with my thoughts. You use your left hand or your right hand for that? You wish. Jerry O'Connell on his knees, kind of walking along. He's such a loser. And then the train, the smoke coming around the corner, and those guys running. Jerry O'Connell does a good job in that scene. He's like, looks looks like he's about to get hit by the train. He's like screaming, crying, and well, we're screaming at him. And then they do the jump, and it's just a flawless four minutes. Oh, yeah. I mean, I still get sucked into that every time because I forget. Yeah. The only the only issue I have with that is like if I'm will like Gordy's really nice, but I would have just been like, if you need to like crawl, I'm going to go ahead of you. Right. Because <laughs> you know? like I think that everybody in that group was like, cool, like the worst case scenario here is the train comes. So let's just expedite this and get across as fast as we can. But yeah, I mean, I even love uh, Teddy's line that he has in that where he's just like, uh, look, you guys can go around if you want to. I'm crossing here. And when you guys are dragging your candy asses halfway across the state and back, I'll be waiting for you on the other side (laughs) with my thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My only nitpick with that scene is they're just casually walking across the train tracks. Yeah, gotta, I, I would have a little pace. L- little bit of hustle. Just a little yeah, bit of hustle. It's, it, it wasn't like it was a short bridge. You got, you got to run it out to first base, man. Yeah. <laughs> Come, on. Come on, guys. Then the, uh, the pie eating contest, which you talked about showing this movie to your kids. I don't know how old my son was the first time I showed. He couldn't have been older than four, but couldn't wait to show him this movie. And especially this scene for little kids it just delivers. It's everything they'd ever want. But when the smell hit the crowd, that's when Lardass' plan really started to work. Girlfriends barfed on boyfriends. Kids barfed on their parents. 
A fat lady barfed in her purse. The Donnelly twins barfed on each other. And the women's auxiliary barfed all over the benevolent order of antelopes. And Lardash just sat back and enjoyed what he'd created. A complete and total barforama. I mean, it's probably, I guess, started a lifelong love of vomit for your kid, right? <laughs> oh my God, yeah. 100%. The uh, the twins throwing up on each other, <laughs> the lady throwing up in her pocketbook, lard ass just covered in in blueberries, laughing the whole thing. I also like. I think it's really well edited. I like how he starts telling the story. We disappear into this whole pie world, and then he does that in lard ass, and they show lard ass with his arms, and he has the closing line, and then it cuts to the three guys at the campfire, and they're all just kind of celebrating how great the story was. It's a home run. But was it? I think that my favorite part about it is that a couple of the guys are just like, that's it? Well, they're celebrating and then, yeah. And then what happened? And it was like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. they're just morons. Um, next rewatchable scene is River's big scene, the, uh, the Milk Money monologue. Maybe I was sorry and I tried to give it back. Tried to give it back? Maybe. Just Maybe. And maybe I took it to old lady Simons and told her, and the money was all there. But I still got a three-day vacation because it never showed up. And maybe the next week, old lady Simons had this brand new sugar on when she came to school. Yeah, yeah, it was brown and had dots on it. Yeah. So let's just say that I stole the milk money, but old lady Simons stole it back from me. Just suppose that I told the story. Me. Chris Chambers, kid brother to eyeball Chambers. Do you think that anyone would have believed it? No. And do you think that that bitch would have dared tried something like that if it had been one of those douchebags from up on The View if they had taken the money? No way. Hell no. But with me? I just wish that I could go someplace where nobody knows me. Here's when he became the number one draft pick. This was this was probably the scene. Reiner said in the oral history that Variety did about this movie in 2016, quote, River did the scene a couple of times. It didn't have that emotion to it. I took him aside and said, you don't have to tell me what it is, but think about a time that an adult, somebody important to you, let you down and you felt like they weren't there for you. The next take is the one that's in the movie. I never knew what he thought about. It. I assume it was his father or his mother, but I don't know. He never said it to me. Um, it's really powerful. It's though, you know, it's coming every time it's it, you get choked up watching it every time he really seems upset by the end of it. And, yeah. it, and it, it's that line of like, I'm not sure how much you're acting. Um, and I think Leo was able to do that a couple of times at this, at similar points of his career too, but it's a really hard place to get to. So many things happen to you when you're around that age, you know, like I think you, you're, you're kind of like out without parental supervision for the first significant amount of time in your life. You're making yeah. friends. You're having these adventures. Another thing that really happens usually around this time is like you you learn that life is full of disappointments. And you learn that people in power above you might disappoint you. And like that, it's like the whole basically like the basis for Catcher in the Rye is like the idea of like these phonies. You know, and yeah. that's really what I think Chris is realizing is like I'm fucked because of my last name or because of like how people see me and there will be people who are going to take advantage of me. And I don't know if I can ever get out from under this town. And like, he's got his brother eyeball, like, and, and that's like his, his destiny. 
Well, and then Will Wheaton's character is kind of the same thing. I'm mm-hmm. always going to be the dead guy's brother. Yeah. My yeah. parents are never going to like me as much as they liked him. I'm not getting out of here either. Then you have Teddy, who's definitely never getting out. And you have Vern, who doesn't want to get out. He's obviously going to grow up there and own a hardware store or whatever and just have a couple kids and, and die there. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, none of them are getting out. And that's just the way it's going to go. It's a really great scene. Um, and if if people listening to this haven't seen this movie, man, it's it's just such a good movie. And then that scene comes and you're just like, fucking hey, River Phoenix. God damn it. I know. Why did it's like when ESPN they'll show the fucking Len Bias North Carolina game and I'll I'll just start watching like, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. Why did he have to go? Um next one is Gordy and Chris versus Ace. I'll kill you, I swear to God. Come on, LaChance, give me the gun. You must have at least some of your brother's good sense. Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Suck my Which, fat one, yeah. It's Gordy's breakdown. Yeah. Ace walks in on it. They're having this moment. And then uh, we don't see Gordy for a little bit. And all of a sudden, he shows up with the gun. Kiefer's throwing 110 miles an hour in this scene. He's really good. And uh, and meanwhile, there's a dead body right there, Ray yeah. Brower, yeah. just decomposing right next to the guys. That scene's good. And then um, last one I have is just the ending. I, you know, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that we love great endings. We do a lot of pods about movies where we're like, eh, the last thirty minutes, whatever. But you know, like this is one where it just keeps building and building, and you're like, oh, okay. And then like it just gets sadder and more beautiful, like every minute. The, the basically, I would say the ending is him saying goodbye to Chris, him telling the story about how Chris died, and then Chris disappears from the picture as he's walking away, and then it cuts to him in the study and he's writing. And it's you know, as somebody who's written, I don't know if you know this, Chris, but I used to be a writer. <laughs> um, you have these moments sometimes when you're writing. And maybe you're deleting a paragraph and rewriting it or trying a couple ways. And then sometimes I used to really care about endings when I wrote comms. I, I always cared about the first paragraph and the last paragraph the most. Yeah. And you'd have these moments where you're trying to figure out what's the perfect sentence to go out on. And you'd stare at it and you'd look and then you'd type that sentence. And it was like, and you kind of look at it on the screen and you go, oh yeah, that worked. And that look he has on his face I could really identify with and just and then he goes outside he's playing he starts wrestling with his two idiot his 12 year old son and his idiot friend and it's like the circle of life it works man twist my arm are you you saying you got me you don't feel that way after we finished the second heat podcast (laughs) I did (laughs) you don't stand up from the microphone and say boy we we really captured Wayne Grow on that one and then you go wrestle with your kid (laughs) with our 200th podcast, when it's me, you, and Michael Mann doing heat, I'm going to feel that way right at the end. Michael Mann's just on a Zoom wondering, why does that guy keep doing Pacino impersonations? <laughs> it's the 10th time he's tried this. Uh, what was the uh, most rewatchable scene for you? Can I add one or two in there? Yeah. Uh, I love when Vern comes up to the treehouse to tell the gang uh, and them playing mm. cards. And I love, I ran all the way home. Right. like. The way that they like, the, and they're like, no, 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 Vern, go ahead, man. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And then as soon as he starts, they start singing again. Let me catch my breath. I ran all the way from my house. I ran all the way home. Come on, you guys listen to me. This is a Come on. Sorry. Sorry. 
okay? Yeah, Forget I it. Say, yeah, I don't have to tell you enough. Hold, hold on, you guys, hold on. What is it, man? Okay, great. You won't believe this. Sincerely, I ran all the way home. Screw you guys. Forget it. What is it? It sets up like the whole gang. Um, but you also see like not only are they like archetypes, but they're also like real characters. Uh, and then I also enjoyed this time around. I really enjoyed um, mailbox baseball and giving each other tattoos, like the two cobras scenes, just because I think that they the cobras are like a really good like this is what's going to happen to those kids if they don't get out of here. Like there's really and and even the cobras like as a gang, what do they do? They're like fishing working on cars, sunbathing, and destroying mailboxes. Like, th- not even the bad guys have fun lives in, in right. this town. So I, I really enjoyed those two scenes. And yeah, I think the bridge crossing, though, is the most rewatchable. Watching this movie with my son last night, they're playing mailbox baseball, and, he, and, he, and he's laughing. His he's eyes going, light I up. I can't wait to do that. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, you're going to be ace. Do you understand the rules of mailbox baseball? Because it seems like there are, I mean, was that even something you had ever heard of before when you saw this movie? Yeah. Okay. But I might have done it in Worcester little, a couple little, times. little New England vandalism in your past yeah. you were talking about? Yeah, mailbox baseball and uh, stealing pumpkins outside of people's houses and just breaking them in front of the house were two New England traditions. That's cool. Um <laughs> I also have the same, the train scene I think is the most rewatchable. Yeah. It's just, it's a flawless piece of uh, whatever it is, four minutes, five minutes. Everything's good about it. They also, they did a trick when they filmed it to make it seem like the train was right on top of those guys with some sort of cinematography thing. The train was much further behind them, but the way they were able to film it made it seem like the train was right behind them. So I didn't know that until I did the research. Um, before we do the rest of the categories, I want to take a break to talk about Showbiz Kids. It premieres HBO Tuesday, July 14th, 9 p.m., directed by uh, Alex Winter. It is available on demand on Wednesday, July 15th. Um, It will be available on HBO Go and HBO Now right away, and I think then eventually it will be on HBO Max as well. So uh, please check this out. There is some Will Wheaton stuff in this. If you like this movie, I think you like it. We also have uh, Todd Bridges is in it. Mara Wilson, Mila Jovovich, Evan Rachel Wood, Jada Pickett-Smith, um, the late Cameron Boyce, who that was one of the last interviews I ever filmed with them. And uh, I think it's really good. I'm really proud of this one. This was probably the easiest documentary experience I've had, where it was like Alex was basically going, here's the movie I want to do. Here's what the tone will be. Here are some of the people I think I can get as interviews. And then it just happened exactly how he said it was going to happen. He's really talented. So uh, music by Jeff Tweedy as well. Oh, wow. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So check that out. It premieres Tuesday, July 14th, 9 p.m. on HBO. What's age the best? I'm going first First and foremost, Fat Jerry O'Connell. It's so funny that he then became Jerry O'Connell. He married Rebecca Romaine Stamos and was Cush and, and his brother was on The Bachelor and you just never would have guessed it from this. Yeah. It's, and he's actually, he's really good in this movie. He's oh. like really good. <laughs> yeah. I would say that he's probably the sneaky best out of the, you, you, when you watch it the first few times, you focus on the other three for a variety of reasons. His part, there's a lot of nuance to it that you pick up the 20th and 22nd time you're watching it. He's really good. Uh, young Kiefer, 
has aged the best when you think about the career that he ends up having. And he's three years away from being engaged to Julia Roberts, being left at the altar. <laughs> he's goes through his whole 90s arc. He won the Dion Waiters Award for a few good men. Yeah, that's right. That's for, right. Uh, what was it, Lieutenant Markinson? No, the Markinson's JT Walsh. I can't remember who. Uh, oh, Kendrick. Kendrick, John, Jonathan J. Kendrick. <laughs> yeah, we we gave him a lot of love in the Few Good Men. He only smiles once this whole movie. He's this basically is, this one is a variation on his Lost Boys character too. Like it's basically oh, yeah. not a vampire and shorter hair, but same asshole. Yeah, Ev- evil Kiefer. So then he turned into Jack Bauer and they had his whole Kiefer, older Kiefer renaissance. And it's fun to see him as young Kiefer. Uh, another would say it's the best leeches. <laughs> Just leeches in a movie always works. Who, who like, it's impossible to watch leeches and not squirm in your seat and just be uncomfortable. Nothing, nothing like a pubescent groin injury to absolutely traumatize you. Like if you oh ever, my God. I remember I got hit, hit, hit pretty hard under the cup with a baseball when I was catching in little league. And I was like, well, that was it. This is, I'm dead. I, I might as well be <laughs> dead. Just, just kill me. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't even been able to use this thing yet. And then now I'm already, I'm already behind the ball. Uh, chicken. The old school game of chicken where Ace is just like, I'm winning this. Yeah. Did you and, and please so, tell me you did not play chicken as a child growing up? <laughs> I can't say I didn't. Right. Right. You, this is like a Rand Contra. You don't recall. I had some dark moments on the uh, post road in Greenwich and Stanford in, uh-huh. in high school. Uh, I, there's some drag races I'm not proud of. Um, oh, the quote from the narrator. It happens sometimes. Friends come in and out of your life like busboys. It's great. It's so true. Great job. Um, another what's age the best? Kids smoking. Awesome. It's great. Appreciate I lo- I love how I love how they've been, they don't even really know how to smoke yet, but they've embraced all the nuances of smoking where they say the stuff like, Man, nothing like a smoke after dinner. And they have those quotes. It's like there is nothing like a smoke after dinner. I also really enjoy the pack rolled up in the white tea. Oh. Ultimate like true dirtbag hall of fame move right there. It's I was thinking how smoking is in this movie is basically what video games is for my son's generation. You just replace <laughs> smoking with video games. It's all about did you get this? Did you get that? Oh, yeah. I got a pack. Want to have some? Hey, well, after afterwards, you want to go into the treehouse and smoke and play cards and great lighter work too, like snap yeah. and close the Zippo. Any other what's age the best for you? On reflection, I really love the like sort of the nesting of the story within the story. I, I thought like Dreyfus is only in it. We can talk about this, I'm sure, in a bit, but very briefly, Richard Dreyfus plays the older version of Gordy. His narration is great. Like when he's talking about um, Vern looking for the pennies. And he's like, nine, what is it, like nine weeks, man. He didn't know whether to laugh or cry. A week later, his mom cleaned out his room and threw away the map. Vern had been trying to find those pennies for nine months. Nine months, man. He didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I thought thought that was really cool this time around. A lot of the times the voiceover can sometimes sink a movie. Um, You know, I had that. I think that's a really good point. I'm anti-narration for movies. Yeah. And in this case, it actually works. Usually it's a sign that Shawshank's another good example. And I remember we talked about this in the Shawshank pod. Usually when you're doing narration in a movie, 
it's a sign you have some sort of narrative flaw. So you needed the narrator to kind of clean stuff up. No, a there's bit. basically like the the three best movies are three of the best movies I've ever seen. It's Stand By Me, Shawshank, and Goodfellas. You know, the three that right. do narration really well. Um, I would also say what's aged the best for me is I've, you know, I think the internet has sort of really changed this whole thing, but childhood, early teenage, like urban legend and mythology, like Moons and Goochers, and oh yeah. guys, I heard this happened. You know what I mean? Like and like just the way stories can mutate when they're told among 12-year-old boys and, yeah. and like the shit you believe in and like guys like would get mad at each other cuz like you stepped on the line of a concrete wrong and you like you jinxed us. Like now we have bad luck for the rest of the football season or something like all all that shit was like always like so was so pervasive in my life and now it's like no one talks about that. I got to say, I had Goocher and What's Age the Worst because I don't know why that didn't take off. I felt like Goocher should have been a bigger thing. I, don't, right. I blame myself for not using it enough. Oh, guys, it's a Goocher. Yeah. Oh, another Goocher. Bad sign. Uh, I'm going to say for What's Age the Best, it's that, you know, I'm going to go off the board with something I didn't even mention yet. I like that this movie is just completely timeless in a way that. 50 years from now, you could still watch it and it's still the same experience. I And I think that happens really only with movies that are set in a, in a perfect time, in a, in a past time with some distance where they create a world that captures what 1959 was like. And then you're kind of trapped there forever every time you go to the movie. It doesn't really matter what year it is that you're watching this. So I would say that's what's aged the best. Yeah, me. I think that you know everything from the way the kids dress to boss man Bob Cormier you know, the radio DJ. Yeah. It's it's not overdone, but like those little sign, like those little touches really like, it's, you're right. It's like a timeless time machine. What's age the worst? Kids smoking. Decided to put that in both categories. Not great, Bob. Uh, yeah. They, I mean, the kids are really, it was something both of my kids were like, wow, man, all four of these kids smoked? Like they're kind of shocked by that. Now the kids, I guess, would be vaping. But yeah. They would be making like, like flying doves with vape smoke or whatever yeah. putting it on, on TikTok. And then uh, the other what's age the worst is just everything that's happened with Corey Feldman basically the last 30 years. There is some Corey Feldman baggage when you watch this movie that I wish didn't exist. It's hard to separate the self-parody that became Corey Feldman and all of the crazy accusations. And he he's just been an ongoing train wreck for, I would say, 25 years now. And it's hard not to think about that at least a little bit when you watch him in this movie. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I can't really think of any other what's age the worst stuff other than yeah. I don't think I, I don't really have any other no. age the worst stuff. I mean, some no. of some of like it's the fucking great. Yeah, yeah. It's a great movie. Casting what ifs. Apparently, Adrian Lyne was going to direct the film, but then nine and a half weeks ran long, and that's how Rob Reiner ended up getting it. I never heard that story. I can't think of less of a Adrian Lyne type of movie than this movie. I just think that that, like, if you if you're if Adrian Lyne comes to you and he's like, you know, I just got done nine and a half weeks, just kind just kind of want to like shed it, shake the cobwebs off a little bit. Let's do this innocent story of four kids. I would just feel like, like, where does Kim Basinger fit into this whole scenario? Or like Ace is also in the sadomasochism. Like, like Mickey he's Rourke have plays some, Ace. Yeah. Yeah. Some crazy sex angle. Thank God that didn't happen. Reiner said um, they saw so they saw basically every young actor from that era. So to even do casting what ifs for some of these parts was really hard. 
Um, but he does remember being incredibly moved by River Phoenix when he came to read for Chris. And they wondered about him. They knew they were going to cast him. They were they wondered about him as Gordy or Chris and how that was going to play out. Um, Corey Haim auditioned for the role of Gordy. Studio wanted him to play Chris Chambers. This is before, uh, I guess, they set on River Phoenix. Um, he didn't want to play the role of the best friend, so he turned it down and made Lucas. Which is in itself like a little bit of a Gordy role, yeah. Corey Haim as Gordy, I think, is is pretty good. Yeah. I, I still really like Will Wheaton as Gordy, and that would be my number one choice. But I think Corey, Corey Haim would have been okay. Um this is half-assed, but Sean Astin, Stephen Dorff, and Ethan Hawke were considered for the role of Gordy Lachance. I think Ethan Hawke would have been really good. He plays the bookish kind of shy kid in Explorers like right around this time. Yeah. So, yeah. so that would have been nice. Um, there were multiple Richard Dreyfus people before it became Richard Dreyfus. It was David Dukes, Ted Bessel, and Michael McKean. And David Dukes, they actually shot a scene with. And if you, oh, wow. the first time you see him at the beginning in the faraway shot of the car, it's not Dreyfus, it's somebody else. Then the close up's Dreyfus, and that's David Dukes. Um, they settled on uh, Dreyfus for it. And then um, this movie was always called The Body. And then Columbia is like, we're not fucking naming this The Body. Come up with some better names. And, uh, and then. Stand by me eventually became the name. And I, yeah, I think calling this movie the body would have been a mistake. I would throw this in what's aged the best is the Jack Nietzsche score. That's sort of the classical version oh, of yeah. the Benny King song and of like some other uh, other fifties and uh, pop songs is is great. Good call. Best that guy, aka the Joey Pants Award. Which guy from Ace's Crew do you want to give this to? So I'm actually going. I'm zagging. I'm going. Uh, I'm going. Bruno Kirby's dad, Bruce Kirby. Uh, who's the Quidicello's guy? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Either him or uh, gotta also shout out Marshall Bell, who plays Gordy's dad and also Quado in Total Recall. <laughs> oh, let's he gets it. Yeah, that's guy. I didn't realize that was yeah. Quado. Quado. <laughs> um, Quaid. <laughs> <laughs> the Vincent Hanna, give me all you got award. Overacting. I don't feel great about this, but if somebody's going to gonna win it, it's got to be... You're going to give it to my, my dad stormed the beach at Normandy? Yeah, it's got to be Feldman. Son of a bitch! You come back you. here! Come back here, you hear me? Nobody makes a well, man! Come back here! My father stormed the beach I said come back here! Feldman dials it up, that one scene. Eyeball... I, the kid who plays Eyeball is really going for it. Yeah, fair. I think Feldman... I, Feldman's got to win somewhere anyway. The Brandy Booth Award for Best Performance by a Pet. Nice scene from Chopper. Good, good job, Chopper. Yeah. Yeah, like a 7 out of 10. Deanne Waiter's Award is loaded. Christ. I, I know who I'm going to pick. Well, Kiefer's eligible. Okay. He's only in like five scenes. John Cusack. Wonderful. It's Cusack. It's Cusack. Or Lardass. It's Lardass Cusack. in there for five minutes. So this is one of the cool things about how movies stay with you throughout your life is I don't know how you feel about it when you watch this movie in what is 86, right? Yeah. But throughout my life, I've always gotten this cheap thrill when Cusack shows up as Denny for those couple of scenes. And furthermore, you get it. You get why like he cast this huge shadow over Gordy's life. Like even Ace is like, 
don't you have any of your brother's good sense? Like even Ace likes Denny Lachance. And Cusack, it just absolutely perfect. He's like not too sentimental. You could buy him as being a quarterback, but he doesn't seem like a super jock, you know? Um, I thought, I think it's Cusack. This, my friend, is for you. This is your Yankee cap. No, 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 this is your Yankee cap. It's good luck cap. You wear that cap, you know how many fish we're going to catch? How much? Brazilian. Brazilian fish. And it looks good on you, too, just like that. Hey, Mo, I'm going blind. Hey, don't start with me, porcupine. Come here, come here. Give me a hug. It's a really nice Cusack run because he's got sure thing before this where he's insanely likable in that movie. He's better off dead. He's in this. He's like a year and a half away from doing Eight Men Out. And it was just always nice to see him pop in and stuff. I agree with you. I think it's Cusack. I think Kiefer, if he's in two less scenes, I would give it to Kiefer. But mm-hmm. he's he's almost feels like the fifth star of the movie. I don't I don't necessarily... I know he's eligible, but I don't know if it's necessarily a Deion Waiters. He's really good in this movie, though. Yeah, he's kind of... it's He's kind of too good in this movie. It's, it's just like, you're like, he's going to cut this kid. Yeah. When he's like, you're not getting this body, or he goes like, not like I jumped your mother or whatever near the end. Yeah. Like, he crosses the line. And Kiefer, instead of like overacting, is just like, oh my God, I'm going to fucking kill you now. And you really like believe he's going to kill you. Anybody, like if you've ever, like when you were, I remember when I was a kid, like there would often be the bully who went like beyond bully, you know, like it, and, yeah. and even his fucked up friends would be like, hey man, like I thought we were just going to scare these kids or whatever. You, you got to like not, not drown, drown this kid or something. Right. And that was always like the most terrifying thing was when the bully scared his own friends. Oh my Fantasy, God. Fantasy's like that with us. <laughs> we're just like, Jesus, Sean. I, I thought we were just supposed to scare him. Uh, recasting couch. So I feel like Eyeball, as much as I enjoy Eyeball, he's really all nickname. The actor is not especially great. I think it's a more fun movie if Eyeball is somebody from that era like Jason Patrick. Machio? Or Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Somebody where it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot Jason Patrick's and he plays eyeball. I think Emilio Estevez has some eyeball energy. He might have, I think he was too famous, though. A- aged out, yeah. I think it's got to be somebody who, it's like that Jason Patrick type of level where it's like a year before Lost Boys or it's like Christian Bale. Yeah, um, Christian Bale. Or Christian Slater. Yeah. Or however you want to go. Like, it, it's somebody in that kind of realm. Half-Fast Internet Research. Um O'Connell said for two weeks they just they just hung out and played games, didn't rehearse at all, became friends. And he said Rob was great with kids. They filmed the Barfarama scene in Brownsville, Oregon. A local bakery supplied the pies and extra filling, which was mixed with large curd cottage cheese to simulate the vomit. Uh, the McLeod River Railroad trestle where they run across the tracks, it's it's Lake Britain in California near the McCarthy, I'm sorry, MacArthur Bernie Falls Memorial State Park in California. I don't know why we have a road trip there. Maybe <laughs> Rewatchables Road Trip. We have to sell that one. <laughs> Rewatchables Pandemic Road Trip. We just yeah. go to different California places. Oh, so that scene I mentioned where they did the camera trick when they're running and the train mm-hmm. seems like it's right behind them. The crew used a 600 millimeter long focus lens that when shot at the telephoto end, compressed the image so much it made it look like the train was right behind them. I have no idea what that means. So that basically means they shot it with a train very far away from them 
but it looks right. like it's. But I have no idea technically how you would actually do that. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize this, and then I was mad I didn't realize this because I love Boys in the Hood. Apparently, Singleton loved Stand by Me and did multiple homages in in Boys in the Hood, including um. Four young boys going to see a dead body. The closing fade out of one of the main characters. Um, he just was a really influential movie to him. And he saw Boys in the Hood as kind of a stand by me thing, which I just never realized. And then as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Um, weird in the 30-year-old history. Here's Dreyfus on Stand By Me. Did you read this? I didn't. Quote, I don't really remember it. It was 30 <laughs> years ago. If you'd asked me yesterday, did I do the voiceover? I would have said yes. Did I appear in it? I would have said, I don't think so. What a prick. He's so he's so nasty about all the movies he's done. Rick Dreyfus. Ah, there might have been some... Was there some drug stuff back then that maybe he didn't remember? No, it was just Richard or? Dreyfus. He was like a big actor. He was coming off like Jaws and Close Encounters, and he was just like Richard Dreyfus. I don't know what the problem is. You were Stand By Me. People love the movie. Take the W. <laughs> How do you not remember being in Stand By Me? He fucking remembers. He's probably like, I should have gotten paid more for it. Dick Dreyfus. Um, we said this should be a new category: the Dick Dreyfus Award for person who's least grateful about being part of this movie. (laughs) What was the one we did? uh, God, I was listening to an old rewatchables we did where somebody was saying about how magnanimous they were on the set. And we were talking about how none of us believed it. Oh, right. It It's almost like we should have some new category about retroactive quote by somebody in the movie that we just think they're completely full of shit. Right. Oh, the Rick Dreyfus award. Like yeah. get the fuck out of here. You don't remember you would stand by me. Come on. <laughs> um, Will Wheaton said he was, uh, he was the weird kid of the four of them. And they, Corey picked on him a lot hmm. during the movie. Um, so there you go. Also, he was faster than River Phoenix, but Wheaton's character had to lose that sprint they had. So he had to do the exaggerated. I was always run, wondering so about Phoenix that because him. it's like I the two, there's two, there's a couple of moments in this movie where you're like, the train one being the most glaring. We can get to this in picking nits, but it really looks like Gordy's got the drop on Chris. And Chris turns on like incredible Carl Lewis speed. At, yeah. at that end there the boys add up their mo- money in that scene when he gets all the all the change from everybody and Vern says he only has seven cents the money added up to 237 which is a Stephen King thing he throws 237 much like me with 33 yeah uh, throws 237 in the shit most famously room 237, room 237 in the yeah. so there you go uh, next category is Apex Mountain Rob Reiner I would say no no. I would say Will Wheaton, I would say yes. Some would argue Star, Star Trek Next Generation, but yeah. Yeah, this is like an iconic movie. Sure. Though. Corey Feldman, probably not. What would you say for Feldman? I mean, for me personally, it's blown away with Corey Haim. That's like the basic instinct ripoff fl- thriller, which is one of the funniest movies in the history of cable. It's just completely over the top. Feldman goes for it in that movie. Like we, It's like Vincent Hanna on steroids, how much he tries to go for it in that movie. That movie is hilarious. I really like him in, in, in Goonies, but yeah. Goonies is good. Yeah. That, so he's also really good in Friday the 13th Part 4. Corey Feldman's been in some good movies. Jerry O'Connell, I don't know what it would be. Probably just marrying Rebecca Roman. It's a great job by him. 
Anybody else for Apex Mountain? I think it's 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 one of the great. Well, we Vandal- didn't say River Phoenix. I guess. Well, yeah, I I would probably. I would say Indiana Jones. I'd say, well, yeah, that or or Private Idaho for me. I I would say for for Stand by Me, I'd probably put uh, Apex Mountain for vandalism. You know, between just mailbox baseball uh, and and, mm. and different like sort of like low grade nineteen fifties gang activity. Teen smoking. Yeah, definitely teen smoking. Bearing pennies under the attic. <laughs> All right, pick a nits. Oh, so here's the case for a Reiner. This movie does well. He ends up starting a production company called Castle Rock Entertainment, which ends up being the one that syndicates Seinfeld and makes a kajillion dollars. That's a pretty good case. I would probably say... So in like early 90s, he does A Few Good Men while also Castle Rock is Seinfeld's taking off. That's got to be his apex mountain. But I did have to mention the Castle Rock piece of it. Yeah, because A Few Good Men also is like when it's like, I think he becomes a serious like Oscar director for a minute. Yeah. So I mean- Castle Rock is the town in this movie. mm -hmm. So there's some symmetry with all that. Picking nits. um, This is my biggest one. How did the leech get- through Gordy's jeans and underwear and land on his I think boss. it goes down the waistband. It's not It's not that complicated. He's only in the water for like two minutes. He's in there for a little while. I mean, there are leeches. I don't, I'm not really an expert, but like, I, it didn't, it didn't Dude, seem like Do leeches move that fast? They can cover like a foot, just go right <laughs> for the testicles in two minutes? <laughs> you wouldn't feel that? I don't know. I, I'd always, if they were in the water for two hours, I get it. But they're right. in the water for two minutes. No, that makes sense. I can see why you're quibbling. Um, I would also say, I, I mean, just picking it in, in general, like, I, it's sad, but I, I just don't think they outrun that train. Um, no. And also, the, if not, the fall kills them. Like, it, it, they shoot that bridge. You can see where the incline is of the ground. Where those guys jump is not like a 10 foot jump. Well, they would have to hit the hill and kind of do the roll, which I think they did is why they didn't show that because it would have been a little unrealistic. Sure. Yeah. Uh, they definitely made it. They definitely got right up and were like, okay, we're good. Let's continue the walk after our 50 foot fall. Yeah. I have, I have some uh, probably unanswerable questions, but there, there's, this movie has very few picking nits. I have a, like a tiny nitpick about the pie eating contest about how you knew somebody was done. See, it just seemed like there was a lot of pie left on Lardass's pies. Yeah. yeah. He's really just going for the middle and then saying he's done. And yeah, it's like, like ah, are you really done? Working the refs a little there. Yeah. I thought Bob Boucher. What was that guy's name? Bob Bob Boucher. The DJ? Yeah, the DJ was... Was Bob, that the guy? Who's Bob the guy Cor- next to him? Cormier. Bob Cormier. Yeah. yeah. I felt like he was taking the pies a little more seriously. Uh, best quote, we already mentioned him. Could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? I hope it doesn't happen, but they actually could remake this as a 10-episode Netflix Yeah, but show. it should be called The Cobras. And it's just about the rise. It's, 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 like, it's like Narcos, but it's about those guys. <laughs> well, you could also do that. You couldn't because River Phoenix isn't alive, but you could have done the Cobra Kai type of catching up with these guys 35 years later. Yeah. The 35-year reunion forklift. of Vern's an incredibly handsome forklift operator. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I would have watched it. What do you got for probably unanswerable questions? So what was the plan when they got to the body? Like for either group. But like they, they kind of yada yada in the beginning. Like and actually Gordy's plan is pretty good where it's like you're going to tell your family that I'm you're over at my house. I'm going to tell them that I'm at your house. 
And then we're going to get out there. And by the time everybody realizes we've been lying, like we're going to be heroes. But they get out there and then it's like, okay, so are you guys going to move this body? Or is somebody going to go make a phone call? And like by, by that same token, what was Ace's plan with that body? <laughs> I don't think Ace showing up with a dead body anywhere is good for Ace. So I was right. always kind of curious because they're like, no, we're just going to leave him and then we'll make an anonymous call. It's that. And then the second flip side of that is just like, where is law enforcement in Castle Rock? Well, and then the third piece of it is, how do the two members of Ace Gang's they even find out about this where the body is. Well, they saw it's it. Kind of they unclear. saw it because they were they were like doing something with the boosted stolen car that they had. So they have seen it already. Yeah, but how? The body's pretty much. They were just it's not near around. anything. It's not like it was off the road. I didn't understand that part. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that the like the actual like what would they have done with the body? How they find the body stuff is a little strange. Um. But yeah, all the stuff that the Cobras do. So like, is Ace just allowed to like roll around town completely unchecked? Or is it just limited to bullying of 12 year olds? Yeah, it's like Ace is basically the guy in Roadhouse, Brad Wesley. <laughs> it's just that the law doesn't apply to him. He gets to do whatever the fuck right. he wants. Um, my unanswerable question is, what? How, what's Gordy's writing career like? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Is it mostly fiction? But then he does this one nonfiction book. Is stuff getting adapted? Yeah. What's he doing now? Because now, so he's 38 in this movie, which is 38 times 34. So he's 70 now. Like, would we know who he is? Is he famous or is he doing young adult novels? What's, what's, his, what's his path? So I think he, um, he, he basically, he tries his hand at fiction. It doesn't really work out. And he winds up covering the Blazers for the Oregonian for a couple of decades. <laughs> jail leaves, Blazers. Leaves to write a Jail Blazers book that he never finishes. And, yeah. <laughs> and got hired by The Athletic in 2017, made a comeback. Um, yeah, I don't know what his... It seemed like his house was pretty nice. But yeah, no, I think it's, been, he's supposed to be Stephen King. I think he's supposed to be like, he, he did it. He, he, he sold some popular books. All right, so if that's the case... Maybe you throw in the poster in his office where it's one of his books and it's like the number one New York Times bestseller. Um the the Da Vinci model. Yeah, right. You know, it's got like a Da Vinci code type thing by Gordy Lachance or Gordon Lachance or whatever. That I wish they had thrown in one wrinkle so we could have gotten a true sense of how successful he was. Yeah, and then that poster would shortly be replaced by a Bonzi Wells poster later. <laughs> He's He's writing basically his version of Presumed Innocent about Chris Chambers. That's right. That's right. And uh, yeah, so anyway. All right. Uh, who won the movie? Phoenix. Can I make the case for Rob Reiner? Sure. Following this, I'm just reading this from Wikipedia. Following the success of Stand By Me, Reiner co founded a film and TV production company named it Castle Rock Entertainment, which led to all the stuff Castle Rock did and probably billions of billions of dollars. I don't know how what kind of cut he got out of it. So there's a case he won the movie, but for me I'm with you. It's River Phoenix. Yeah, I think it's like a generational performance. It's like and it's it's one that has completely stood the test of time like, you know, like when you I was watching like you know, I I it was randomly on Turner Classic the other night and I was watching East of Eden. You know, it was just like just watching James Dean, which is not somebody I obviously grew up with, but like I was like, "Oh, you know, some of the stuff he's doing is like a little histrionic. It hasn't really like kind of like 
aged as well. Like you watch like Phoenix. If if Phoenix was in like an HBO show tomorrow, it would seem like perfect. You know, like his his acting style is just completely timeless. He also seems like the guy from that generation that everyone else mm-hmm. kind of revered. Yeah, absolutely. Which I don't even know if Leo ever got to that level. Where uh, everybody in his generation is like, Leo's the fucking guy. I right. don't feel like people 100% felt that way about him. No, I and he seems to be a pretty singularly like beloved person in that generation, for sure. Well, it's interesting. I don't, To my knowledge, there's never been a documentary about him. People are very close-lipped mm-hmm. about his whole career and, and some of the demons he faced. And it's almost like everybody who was in his life They've all agreed, like we're not talking, we're not exploiting this guy. This guy meant too much to us. So, yeah, I think from that standpoint, it, it's hard, it's hard not to watch this movie and walk away just thinking about River Phoenix. So, from that standpoint alone, I think he wins the movie. Um, all right, that's it for the rewatchables, Chris Ryan. Bill, thank you. This was uh, this was a pleasure as always. Don't forget about Showbiz Kids premiering Tuesday, July fourteenth on HBO and then you can catch it on uh, on demand the day after that. It's really good. Highly recommend uh, locking it down. It's not like there's a lot of content right now. This is actually a really good documentary that uh, look, it's two hours of your life that you'll actually enjoy and not have to think about what the hell you're going to do all day for content. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's 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 incredible to pair it with with some of the films from these kids' lives just to see what what kind of work they were doing. Yeah, it's funny. We thought about doing ET for this, mm-hmm. and I think Stand by Me made more sense because the Will Wheaton connection. But then also, just I want to talk about River Phoenix, who was somebody that uh, that was it. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening to Rewatchables. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Bill. No, I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't be afraid. Just as long as you stand. Stand by me.